And welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest today is Andy Chase. Now Andy, along with Adam Schlesinger and Dominique Duran, formed Ivy. Now Ivy was an indie pop band that formed in New York City back in the 90s. I haven't heard really much about them since about 2011, so I was curious to see what was going on. So Andy filled me in about what's up with him, both professionally and personally now. Now Ivy, their music was licensed in a lot of TV shows and commercials, movies. Edge of the Ocean, Undertow were probably the two biggest songs that were featured. Their music was also featured predominantly in the Farley Brothers movies. Uh, they did the score for Shallow How. Me, myself, and Irene, they had songs in there. But I first discovered them in There's Something About Mary. I'm sure most of you did as well. Uh, it was a very interesting in- interview with Andy, and I hope you enjoy it. Helping me relive my youth today is Andy Chase. Andy, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. Yeah. So, um, yeah, let's let's start way way back. Uh, when did you first get involved in music? Well, I was uh, I was the oldest of three boys in a Jewish family. That my father's the first generation American, sort of typical, expecting me to uh, go into the family business. Um, and so I was sort of groomed since I was young to um, sort of know what my path was. And my younger brother, who was a prodigy on the uh, violin and piano, uh, taught me when he was nine, he taught me chords on the piano. So I was, I think, 13. And that, just, that was just this epiphany that uh, I, I just felt like I was meant to do something else other than, you know, find a desk next to my father every day. So I guess my... 13, 14, I started, I just was, I don't know why, I was never interested in playing other people's music. I just, I didn't care about being a good musician. I just wanted to be good enough to learn how to play the ideas that were in my head. And by the time I was 16, 17, I was, I was writing songs, and it just felt really, uh, the idea of giving, not doing that for the rest of my life was just depressing. So 
um, you know, by the end of college, I just, you know, announced uh, to my dad that I wasn't going to go work for him and I was going to move to New York when I graduated college. Well, I mean, first I tried not to go to college and right. start a band. That didn't, that didn't work. <laughs> I tried to do an inter- intervention. So, uh, but I, I announced that I was going to go to New York and start a band. And, um, and that was the second intervention <laughs> that he tried to do. <laughs> right. uh, but that, you know, at that point I was a fully formed, you know, person. I was, you know, 20, 21, and yeah. there was no changing my mind. So that's, that's, that's sort of how, you know, when I was in bands in high school, but, you know, my father, of course, just assumed that that was just, you know, just like some kids, uh, you know, play soccer, other kids fish, you know, okay, my son is in a band, but that's, you know, he didn't really take it seriously. And I didn't either. So it was just something that I knew I was good at, but I didn't really think of it as a career until I just realized after college that, I, that that's the only thing I wanted to do. Now, when he realized that you were determined into becoming a professional musician, did he kind of like support you after that? It was the support was um, it was kind of based on what you would expect parents to, to, to base their support on. You know, at first, um, you know, every six months I was calling and, and saying, uh, I need more money. Right. And, um, you know, but once they started seeing uh, records in the stores and they started, you know, they would come to, they're, they're from D.C., so when I would go to, uh, in the early years when I started Ivy and we got signed and we'd come to D.C. and there'd be a hundred people and my, you know, parents would be in the audience and, you know, a couple years later there'd be 1,200 people and my parents were in the audience and at that point we'd have, you know, a Volkswagen commercial with our song in it, and there was, you know, Holland America Cruise Lines commercial with that, and we were, you know, um, you know, you walk into uh, Tower Records and see us, you know, in full display, and I think those are the kinds of, uh, I guess I'd call them superficial, because in the scheme of things, it's, it's, yeah, it's a feather in your cap, but it's, it's not the most important thing, but for your parents, that's who don't really understand the industry or, or like, you know, they don't understand much. So those were big, those were helpful, uh, I guess, milestones for them just to see that, that, that maybe they should keep supporting, um, you know, their kids' endeavors. Because even in the early years, I mean, we still, um, you know, you still, it was hard to make a living. So, you know, unless you're, you know, you have some trust fund, you, you really rely on, <laughs> where else are you going to get money to, to do what you're getting better and better at if you don't, you know, rely on your parents. So it's, it, I needed that support. So those, those early signs were really important um, to getting that continued support. Right. And you mentioned uh, starting Ivy. Um, how did, how did that go about? I know, you know, you moved to New York, but uh, how, how did you go about meeting Adam first and then eventually Dominique? Well, I, when I moved to New York, I put, I put an ad in, you know, back then there was no internet, you know, this right. was like the, you know, the early nineties. And so I put an ad in, in the big paper called the village voice yeah. uh, in New York city. And it was, I was advertising, you know, um, lead singer, songwriter, looking to put band together, looking for bass player, drummer, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and I listed my influence and which were really quirky. And so I knew anybody who called and responded to the ad was either full of it Right. And I would know in two seconds that they didn't know these bands. And I had a few of them, you know, like I had Prefab Sprout in there as one of my influences. Okay, yeah. You know, uh, you'd have some guy going, yeah, man, you're a cool cat. I, I responded to your ad because I'm really into that, you know, Prefab How stuff. <laughs> you know, like, uh-huh. Um, but Adam answered, and um, I met with him. And at that point, I had a girlfriend, and that was Dominique right. uh, Durant. And so she, I made her hide, and it was a one-bedroom apartment, so I made her hide in the bedroom while I had my business meeting with Adam in my living room. And uh, when he left, it was unfortunate because he said, well, I'm in, a, I'm in a band with a lead singer. His name's Chris Collingwood, who, by the way, so that they, those two became Fountains of Wayne. Right. Um, and he said, we're, you know, we're kind of looking for a guitar player, background singer. And I said, well, I'm more of a lead singer, and uh, would Chris want to play guitar for our band, my band. He's like, mm, no. So we shook hands and said, thanks, but no thanks. And then Domi came out of the bedroom and she was like, that guy's really cool. You should try to, you know, stay in touch with him. And uh, she was right. So I had a pretext for calling him back about a year later. Um, I had, I got Dominique drunk and <laughs> just 
put the capo up on the three or four frets higher than from than than I would normally do it if I was singing. And got her drunk and made her sing some of the songs that I was writing. I called up Adam and I said, hey, you know, you never met my girlfriend. She was hiding in the bedroom when you were over. But uh, I did some cute little demos with her and I need somebody to play bass. So he came down, played bass, we hung out. And, and he, he, he was like, you know, your girlfriend, she's not like a singer singer, but she's got something. And we should, I don't know, we should do some more songs. So... It just evolved that way, and that's those demos that he ended up coming down on to play bass. Um, those became the first Ivy recordings. So that those songs are, are are on our EP called Lately. good thing you got alcohol involved so it was one good decision based on off alcohol right there huh <laughs> i tell you alcohol if, if it wasn't for alcohol half the half the singer songwriter half the bands we love would never be able to get on stage yeah absolutely <laughs> they call it liquid, liquid courage liquid courage yeah it's unbelievable really unbelievable how many people i've met along the way including dominique um who who are just really really uncomfortable about getting up on stage initially i'm not saying forever right um it's not like carly simon who's you know famous for you know collapsing on stage from stage fright but um you know having enough uh courage to step in front of a microphone and sing and then having this epiphany oh shoot that's what i should be doing it's amazing how you know people really need some crutch initially to help them get over the huge huge you know chasm that there really is of fear uh in, in bridging that gap yeah i mean like even like uh, andy partridge from like xtc is like definitely afraid of performing i don't think they performed in over 30 years now oh totally yeah i mean there's uh it's not you know i'm pretty sure that and i'm not a fan of them but it's just they're kind of known for uh for this um Steely Dan, right? I mean, right. they were legendary for not not really playing shows or maybe not really enjoying it. And I, the, the, the official reason was, I don't know, probably what XTC's official reason was, you know, 
but just it was that, it was that all these excuses except for the real excuse. The real excuse was they didn't like playing live because they were scared out of their gourd yeah. to get on stage, and that fear never dissipated. That's the thing. That's that's and alcohol won't do that. You know, alcohol is just a good thing to bridge the gap until you get your 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 feet wet and then you get comfortable. But there's some people who just never ever get comfortable and they don't enjoy it and they don't tour. Yeah, and it's it's amazing. You know, they sell millions of records and they they just limit themselves just to record sales. Sometimes it works for you. You know, it creates this uh, this allure. You know, the band that is so elusive and they don't play live. And you know, in the in the old days before the internet, or certainly before Google, um, it was hard to get information. Right? I mean, the, the in two seconds, you can mention to me a name of a band you like, and as soon as this interview is over, I can look them up right. in like 45 seconds and know everything there is to know. In the old days, it was so hard to get information. So the idea that there was a band you liked, you didn't necessarily know why they weren't playing in your neighborhood or maybe in your country. You just knew that they were elusive, and that added to the mystique. You didn't really know the, the, the nitty-gritty details that we can know now with a Google search. That Oh, well, you know, they tried playing live when they got their first record deal, and the singer collapsed and went unconscious on stage right. because he was so nervous. Like, you don't know all that. You just know, like, the band is even more attractive to you because they're so, um, their presence is so scarce. Yeah, and you also had to you know, rely on like liner notes from either like you know vinyl or a cassette back then, or even a, a CD. And now it's like there's nothing in any of those, and it's all you know, like you said, Google, Wikipedia, you know, even uh, even Spotify has a nice bio on you know on Art of the Artist as well. I think that um, I mean I haven't studied this, so I'm not saying this officially with any kind of like. Uh, investigative knowledge, but I, my assumption is that the more readily available information is and the access to the music of the bands that we like is, then I would say proportionally the less invested we are in those bands and that music. When you can find out everything in two seconds and download any song you want, and it doesn't have to be the whole record, right. so um, it's it kind of makes everything more disposable. You don't get invested the way someone would if they had to actually spend a lot of their time investigating, do, doing due diligence, you know, going to the record store, asking questions, uh, buying music magazines just in the hopes of finding some article on the band that they were intrigued about. That creates intrigue, and intrigue creates an investment of time, and investment of time creates um, a uh, loyalty. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, it's it's having you know music at the palm of your hand is great, but I I certainly miss you know the the quest and finding you know you hear lyrics to a song, you try to memorize them, you go to the store and you sing them back to the employees because you don't know who you know the artist, you don't know the name of the song, while they think you're a fool. But it's you, you kind of miss that that whole like romance of music back then. It's it's yes. And, you know, for the younger generation coming up, you know, they would, they would hear this conversation and go, you know, they'd roll their eyes. Right, right? of course. It's, yeah. it's, um, it's what's happening is just the paradigm is changing, and there's a new uh, culture coming up that is being, it's re, they're being recalibrated. And so it, I don't think it's fully formed yet. Wherever it, however it's going to land, we're not yet. We're not there yet. We're like in some tran, transition stage because... Um, I mean, okay, here's an example. If it's been proven that there's a reason why with spell check, we keep making the same spelling mistakes over and over. I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you take note of what spell check keeps correcting, it's usually the same words. spelling mistakes, yeah. right? The same words. And the, the reason is because um, when we get access to information quickly, like in a quick Google search or a, you know, in this case, it would be this, this, the uh, spelling correction. We put that in our short-term memory banks. And so when we need to recall that information again, maybe a week later when we're writing an email with the same word that comes up, we forget it. Because it did, um, however, if you go back 30 years and that same spelling mistake 
you know, the teacher chastises you and says you keep making that. So you go home and you, like, have to open up a dictionary. And first you have to find the dictionary in your parents' like book collection. <laughs> exactly. And there it is. You pull it off the shelf. You look it up. By the time you've done that, that process has put it in your long-term memory banks. And so you usually don't forget it. And that's, what's, that's really symbolic of what's happening today with music and, and the kind of culture coming up. They have such quick access and easy access to all the information they need that it doesn't create long-term impressions on them. So it's very disposable. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And the spelling thing is funny because I have two kids, and where I live, spelling is not required. It's not really required anymore in schoolwork. So my daughter, who's eight years old, spells half the words incorrectly, and it's it's not a problem because they don't teach it in school. They have their couple of spelling words here and there, but they don't have like if you misspell, you know, chair or, or whatever word, the teacher doesn't. Cr- correct it and it's like it's very unfortunate you know because now i guess just like you said autotype and spell check will just fix it for you but you know it's it's a shame well it's um like i said it's this is the process that may take another you know 10 20 years that's 30 years it's uh rewiring uh our brains not ours not yours or mine but like your kids my kids their brains are being rewired so that they can better be better equipped to multitask. Um, you know, the art of multitasking requires just grabbing information quickly and throwing it in short-term memory banks and being able to juggle it there. If you, we don't have the time to process things in you know, long-term memory banks because that's not the nature of multitasking. No. Um, that's, 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 that's focusing on one thing. So it's, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see the kind of landscape of music culture in maybe 20, 30 years when, you know, kids who are 7, 8, 9 to 18, 19, 20 are at midlife, you know, to see what their their musical culture really looks like. Yeah, uh, totally, totally. Now, I, I discovered Ivy probably like most like people did because of the um, Something About Mary soundtrack. And heard the song in the movie and didn't, you know, didn't have like Shazam back then. So you wouldn't be able to like hold the phone to the you know, movie screen to hear who sang it. So I, I went you out. Sure, you must have had a lot of work to do to figure out from that, you know, who we were. Oh, oh I, absolutely. So, you know, I waited for the uh, soundtrack to come out. Like, and that's another thing now. Movie soundtracks are kind of like, you know, pretty much dead. I uh, got in the store had to listen to each song before I figured it out. And I'm like, wow, this is great. And then I went out, you know, and bought, I ended up buying Apartment Life and then Realistic. So I, I ended up buying, you know, the stuff there and became an instant fan. So it's, it's kind of funny how that basically started my whole, like, obs- not only the obsession, but fandom for the band.
Tune Find, which is a similar thing where they'll list, you know, I think TV shows and movies, and they'll, they won't, like, give lyrics to the song, but they'll describe the scene in which the song was played. So it's, it's, it's pretty clever, you know, as well. I mean, now you can just type a Google search. You can say, mellow song with climactic end, and even if you don't remember the show you saw it on, yeah. uh, NBC show, Saturday Night, right. mellow song, climactic end, who is it? And, you know, that, in a Google search, it'll probably pop up the answer. Yeah, absolutely. But, like, you know, some, some of your stuff was, was on, like, uh, CW or even maybe WB back then. And at the end of, like, their shows, they, they were smart. They would play, you know, a clip of the song and, you know, have the name of it and, sh- and show where you can buy it. So I think that was, like, one of the first networks, maybe the only one that actually did that. So that was pretty clever. Yeah, well, they, by the way, uh, just so you know, that, that was only because um, our, the record company would negotiate that. Okay. It basically would say, okay, uh, you're going to put our song in, your, in, your, in this scene in, on your episode of WB. Okay, normally it's $12,000. We'll do it for 8000 not twelve, but the $4,000 credit, we want to see it come back in terms of you giving us a three-second display at the end of the show, of the of that episode where you show the name of the band and the label. That's clever, definitely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, I, I, saw, I saw you guys in concert. Oh, Ivy. I think it was like the All Hours uh, music or uh, album release in Gramercy. What was it, like seven, eight years ago with Tahiti 80, a band that you produced. Um you guys yeah. have any? I, I know you're busy. Adam's busy. Any plans to like perform again or write again with them? I think all I think all hours was our last album. Was it 2011? Yeah. Yeah. No, we we kind of you know Dominique and I split up. Oh, okay. Um, 
And I had, I, we just sort of, uh, I guess we, you know, officially we, we, we disbanded. Okay. Um, although I, although I see them, you know, I, I'm still extremely close with Dominique. We have three kids together. We still right. vacation together. Right. Uh, we see Adam a lot. We have dinner with his kids. So it's like a, a, a very um, civilized and polite breakup. Okay. So officially, there's no reason for us to ever make another record, but um, uh, never say never. Right. True. True. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm glad you know things are okay, but yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, but you kind of then transformed to Brookville, which was absolutely fabulous. Camera two, right? What was the right. yeah? What was the transformation like from Brookville to Camera two? Brookville was my initial attempt to sing uh, as a lead singer, which I had put on 
unfolds for so many years when Ivy uh, got got the first record deal that that really jettisoned us into this momentum that didn't stop. And so the idea of being a lead singer, which I had been trying to do in the few years before Ivy, uh, that just got put on hold. And I said, okay, well, I didn't really want to be, I didn't imagine myself when I was telling my dad I wasn't going to work for him that I would be a guitar player standing behind my wife on stage. But after so many years of success, it just seems more and more like that redefined my paradigm. And so I think it was 90, 1998 or around there that Adam uh, must have had the same, I guess, uh, misgivings about putting his aspirations with Chris Collingwood on hold when Ivy got signed. Right. And he recircled with Chris and made some demos, and we were signed to Atlantic at that point. Ivy was signed to Atlantic. So he played the demos of him and Chris to Atlantic and got signed, and they called it Fountains of Wayne. And so seeing him go off and do his side project made me, uh, I guess, gave me the, that was the impetus for me to say, okay, screw it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start singing again. So that, that was Brookville. And the transition from Brookville to Camera 2, I, I don't know. I, I did a bunch, I maybe two or three records as Brookville. And, uh, started getting into a different kind of music, more, much more maybe dark and right. edgy. And I wrote a bunch of songs that just sounded nothing like Ivy, so it wouldn't be Ivy material. And it was so different than Brookville that I just it started making me realize this isn't an anomaly, what I'm writing. This is like where I am at this point in my life, and it doesn't really fit in the construct of what um, Brookville was or what I thought of Brookville. So I, I decided to just call it something new and start over fresh. Yeah, and uh, Camera 2, I, I saw some of the videos you had, that that, that, that video series you, you had with that, with that kid. Was that, I, I, don't, I don't know, is that, was that your son? Yeah, that's mine. That's Dominique. Dominique and my child, yeah. Oh, wow, okay, yeah. Uh, that was a, he did a great job in, in those videos. It's, um, I would recommend everyone to go check it out on YouTube, Camera 2, Number 2. Um, you guys put out anything lately? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, well, first of all, the, the video series, I was really proud of because, I don't think anybody's really, really done that. And I, I wanted to do, I wanted to do something that was. Everyone wants to say no one's ever done that before. You know, right. Yeah. What can you do when you're making videos? Um, I had this concept to just take every song off the album that was the first Camera Two album and and make every song a continuation of the song before it. Uh, Imagery-wise, we're talking videos. So, for example, if the first song in the album, if you see the video, is this boy who's, uh, you know, the narrative of, of this boy who's wandering through the streets of New York, and at the end of the video, he lays down on, a, on the curb on the yeah. sidewalk and he, he goes to sleep. Well, then the second song in the album would pick up from where that left off. So the video would start with him waking up from the curb, getting up, and, you know, walking to some other... Uh, event and so each video is a continuation a of the same narrative with the same protagonist you know the same boy so that's that's why when you see um, or you know the videos from that period it's, it's the same kid and some people didn't get that they were like you know what what they can't afford another actor I mean, <laughs> the same kid you know right um, and you know I, I saw some other stuff like you know um, uh, this band must, they must be like pedophiles. I mean, they, like every video, they use the same, like they use little <laughs> kids. And it's like, right. no, that's my son. And no, it's the narrative. It's a story uh, of, you know, from beginning to end, from the album, first album track to the last. It's the adventures of this little boy. And, and the band is interwoven uh, into each, you know, each story. Yeah, and... Um... 
I mean, shot that in you know, the streets of New York City and also Times Square. Were those difficult shoots at all? They were all difficult. Right. And, but they were, they were really fun. I mean, we, we shot one of the first ones at 12 midnight on a Saturday night in Times Square, New York oh. City. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're, we're doing this guerrilla style, so we don't have permits. We don't right. have a big crew. And it, the streets are mobs. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you know, but like oh, yeah. you know, on a Saturday night in New York when the weather's good, in Times Square, it's it's just mayhem. And so it's just, uh, it's just the four of us in the band, my son Julian, and a cameraman, and two guys to just basically like bouncers at a club just standing, you know, in front of the crew as we walk through the streets trying to push people away. Um, that was really... That was that was difficult, and also the, the lip syncing because the all the videos are shot um, so that they're played back in slow motion, and uh, but in slow motion the singing, which is my son lip syncing, is still done and uh, it's still matching the lyrics. So there's a lot of technical coordination that's required to be able to slow down what you filmed so that he's singing in, in time with the music. Um, and especially in Times Square when it's noisy and people are screaming like, you know, he looked like Justin Bieber back then. So people would, you know, you'd hear people screaming like, Justin Bieber! And um, that, it's just very disruptive when he's trying to hear the playback as we're recording and he's trying to lip sync accurately. Um, but it's all good. It was all just, just a blast. I mean, we had shoots that took us to San Francisco, L.A., uh, Martha's Vineyard, oh, wow. coast of, you know, Cape Cod, um, the, the deep, deep woods of Pennsylvania. Um, those were all kind of the locations. And then, you know, Times Square and other parts of New York City. Yeah, And, and your son enjoyed doing those videos, right? He did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he really did. Yeah, that's but he's all... you know he's easy to please. You just give him some donuts, and he's, oh. he's like, "When are we doing another shoot?" Yeah, oh, that sounds like me. So it's the same way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, like I said before, I discovered you know Ivy through um, the song about Mary, but you also did uh, some other work on some other Farrelly Brothers movies, Shallow Hal, um, Me Myself and Irene. How did you get involved with those guys? Well, those are all Fairly Brothers films. Right. So we, um, Ivy would, you know, we would go to L.A. On, as part of our tour, and we, our manager would say, well, we got a request from the Fairly Brothers, and we're like, oh, we love those guys. Yeah, they're coming to your show. Um, we're going to, you know, have a uh, VIP seating area, and, um, you know, I'll introduce you afterwards. And we come back a year later, and they were at our next show there. And so we kind of knew them superficially, like, hey, shake hands after the show. They come backstage. And, and then we, they started putting us in their movies.
You know, they just started placing our songs in their films and something about Mary. They even, they told us that we had two or three and they invited us to the premiere, uh, which was in Philadelphia. Uh, sorry, which was in Rhode uh, And that was really exciting because when we saw the premiere of Something About Mary, we knew that that movie was just going to be a massive hit. We just, we just knew. It was just so obvious. We um, And... I guess we were in, me, myself, and Irene, they put a, a couple of songs in there. And then, and then typically, you know, okay, we played L.A. a few years after that. And um, at that point, we kind of knew Peter Farrelly well enough to chat with him. And, um, you know, now we'd seen him a bunch of times. He put us in a bunch of his films. And so when we saw him at our show, it was much more friendly and, and uh, comfortable. And so we're on the plane from L.A. after our show, heading back to New York, and I get a call from my manager, and he said, I just got off the phone with Peter Fairley, and they've got a new film that they're in uh, early production on called Shallow How, and they want to know if you guys actually want to score the film. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, they can use any songs they want. I mean, he knows that. And my manager said, no, 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 no. They want you to write all the music. And they, do. they want you to score the entire film. definitely difficult but yeah those all their films are, are great and you guys did a good job with them well it's it's all it's all thanks to you know peter fairley and also his the guys who he trusts to do uh their music supervisors so um those are the guys that 
oftentimes pick a lot of his songs and play it for the director, and he picks which ones he likes. And to the music supervisors, um, we became friends with as well. Um, it's a guy named uh, Tom Wolf and Manish Raval. They have a they've, they've done the music supervising in all the Fairly Brothers films. And they, those two guys, Tom and Manish and, and Pierre Fairley, I mean, they, they pretty much single-handedly are responsible for a lot of the film work that we've ended up doing because they just gave us our, our first big break. Right. Yeah. Now, who does that? Who just takes somebody with no experience scoring films and just says, ah, I trust you. Let me handle 20th Century Fox. Right. You just yeah. accept. Don't worry. Like, Unbelievable. Yeah, it's not like it's an, it's not like it's an indie picture. It's you know one of the major uh, movie studios. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're following up their success of something about Mary, and they're handing the entire score in the hands of a of a neophyte band, and they're like, I know, don't be scared, guys. We'll handle the big guns. You know, just say yes. Right. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. But um, Andy, this this was great. Thank you so much, and uh, continued success with everything. Thank you. Yeah, happy to happy to chat with you. And a special thanks to Andy for joining us today. Go check out his website, andychase.com. If you go to YouTube, you can check out those camera two videos. Just search camera two, camera with the number two at the end. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at the first Noel one nine. Be sure to like the page for Living My Youth on Facebook. You can go to iTunes, while you're there, you can check out all the past episodes we've had, and please rate and review the show. If you don't have iTunes, not a problem, you can check out the show on Podbean, check it out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to everyone who's listening, can't do it without you guys, and be on the lookout for another episode of Reliving My Youth, real soon. <laughs>